Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rehab Podiatrist podcast, conversations that challenge and change clinical practice. My name is Alex Murray. I'm a sports podiatrist and rehabilitation coach. And today I am very lucky to be joined by Michael Nischke, uh, another sports podiatrist uh, based in Adelaide. In Adelaide. Thanks for having me, Alex. Michael's very, um, if you don't know who he is, it's it's what... Uh, what rock are you living under? Um, but I'll I'll get him to introduce himself, tell him a bit more about his uh, his experience and uh, and his other podcast as well. Yeah, uh, look, I I'm a podiatrist. I'm in, I'm in my uh, starting my or the end of my sixteenth year now, so I feel like I'm a veteran uh, in this field, um, but forever learning. So I graduated from the University of South Australia, which I still am based. Uh, I grew up in a country town in the Riverland, so. Uh, my parents uh, well, were cereal farmers. Um, they sold the farm to the rest of my family. I decided not to stay on the farm. So um, on the side, I'm an athletics coach. I'm about my seventh or eighth year of athletics coaching. And um, the reason I sort of moved into coaching, which is still categorized as a hobby at this point in time, um, it's tough to make a living out of um, athletics coaching, that's for sure, or any coaching in that manner. Uh, but I also have been doing athletics since I was about 12 or 13, living in a country area, um, you know, one of four children. Um, athletics was a very self, um, you could, you could self-organize that activity quite well where I grew up. So I chose that as an activity that I, that I, that I just enjoyed at a younger age. I could control a lot better and it was easy for me to get to there rather than team trainings and football and, and basketball and other activities that my peers were doing at school. So I currently work in a sports medicine facility in Adelaide now with two other sports physicians and it's multidisciplinary. So we have physiotherapists, dietitians, um, and um, nursing staff and a gymnasium upstairs that sort of is more generic in nature. They run more high intensity classes and, and, and traditional strength and conditioning, which is a nice facility to be in. And we're, we're in about an eighth year now. So um, you can imagine, obviously, we started in about 2016 and, and 2020 was the start of COVID. So it was nice to sort of, you know, I guess you can see before COVID, during COVID, and then off the back end of COVID, how much has evolved in terms of, um, you know, business. I was saying to Alex just off there that seeing patients is the, the joy of uh, owning a business. Um, it's the business side of it that sometimes can be uh, the more challenging aspect Um uh, running the business on the side of dealing with um, relationship building within the clinicians and building a really good uh, work environment is um, currently where I'm at. So, yeah. Oh, we have, sorry, we have a podcast as well. So we have, <laughs> we have a podcast, but it was about shoes. So the Inside Running podcast um, is, I'm a co-host there with two other, um, well, one's a, uh, you know, it's a retail shop in Geelong. And other is podiatrist, Tom DeCanto, also based in Sydney. And um, it started off as a podcast where we talked about what shoes we wore for the month of training and now has a bit of a cult following, which is a um, really enjoyable podcast. Um, the content is somewhere between um, educational and banter. So and it is enjoyable to be part of. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, um, it's, a nice sort of, it's a nice sort of space to be in where it's like you don't have like a specific agenda to, to, to follow. It's just like, we're going to talk about shoes. And as long as we've, mm -hmm. we've gotten there, it's, that's it. That's it. Yep. Really enjoyable. Why I wanted to, to get you, get you on and, and have a chat is, is not related to shoes at all. Um, which might, uh, might be uh, out of your, out of your comfort zone a little bit for podcasting. <laughs> um, but it was, 
it was around the sort of when I was sort of having some posts on social media and you were shooting me some comments and it was really around mm -hmm. exercise uh, prescription, rehabilitation mm -hmm. and coaching uh, as well. So you've, you've talked about your athletics coach background. Mm -hmm. You've talked about, you know, how you, you're an, um, you're an athletics and a, and a runner yourself and sort of that, that meeting between the, the two. And, and we, we obviously mm -hmm. have some very, um, very compatible views. Um, but two, two sort of different, different experiences, um, myself having worked in, in rugby and with, with patients and mm -hmm. yourself working in athletics. So if we're, if we're talking about, you know, taking that, that combination, you know, you as a podiatrist, you as a coach, mm -hmm. and, you know, we're talking about the increased need to focus on coaching and our patients in clinical practice, sort of moving mm -hmm. away from fixing them to behavior change, to, to helping them yep. make the, the, the better choices and coaching them through that. Can you sort of talk to me about, you know, your thoughts, your experiences, you know, with that, that shift and, and I yep. guess specifically as well, whether that sort of came as a, as a big shift or whether as like an epiphany or whether that was just something you slowly did over time. Look, I was always very self-motivated as a child in my athletics as well to try and make myself better. You would almost make the argument that I sort of chose podiatry or allied health profession almost selfishly to try and solve my own problems. You know, why couldn't I handle as much training load while was I saw? And I always think about the prominent people in my life who made an impact and sort of make, helping me make better decisions and to, to handle more running and run a bit better as well. I used to even remember going back, I actually, because uh, I lived in the country, driving to Adelaide to see a sports medicine practitioner. I remember seeing a podiatrist at the age of 16 and going up there and somewhere along, you know, back then the internet, I was, you know, I had access for about an hour per day, I think it was in, in, in year 10. <laughs> and I would, you know, you were trying to self-organize, reading magazines. Now, why am I getting shin pain? I'm playing football twice a week. I go out the door and I run hard every day. Why am I sore? I can't work it out. You know, 16-year-old can't work it out. I think I'm doing all the right things, but you just have no idea. And even tracking down physiotherapists and podiatrists and doing three-hour trips to almost seek the answer. And, um, and, and look, lo and behold, I was always a bit disappointed driving for three hours and seeing a great sports practitioner and getting, you know, I mean, back then I, I remember seeing a practitioner and they said, oh, you, can you send me a VHS footage of um, how you run or how you move? And there was no understanding about why I was doing what I was doing and my running and, and how much I was doing. There were no questions in that realm. And it wasn't until I sort of uh, took on a coach who was also based in Adelaide who sort of, um, you know, each Sunday he'd give me a phone call and he'd give me a training load and he'd sort of just describe things to me. Was This is why we do what we're doing. Um, and I described some things that was happening to me, like, oh, my shins are sore. And, and suddenly you had this person just from his own experience and education sort of saying, well, look, how about we take a couple of days off and then we run a little bit slower here, there. And, you know, if we run hard, let's take two or three days easy between, for example, your football load's really high. Um, let's just reduce your running load a lot to try and accommodate that until football finishes. And suddenly I was getting these answers from this person who wasn't a professional that I wasn't driving three hours to see and, uh, and, and paying hundreds of dollars. to. I was getting answers from someone who had a bit of intuition and experience. And, and so this person was, you know, indirectly coaching me and helping me uh, make my own decisions or help me make better decisions. And it's often, I had have a conversation with him every, every Sunday on an hour, mm -hmm. John. So he was, it was a fantastic coach. He would have been probably early 70s or late 60s at that point in time. And he was, you know, doing it off just for the, you know, the, just wanted to help country runners, you know, eventually make, make their way into the world. And 
that had a high impact on my decision to become a practitioner in the future purely on the basis I couldn't I couldn't work out why I hadn't had answers like this from practitioners I was seeing why couldn't someone help me I mean I didn't know why I was getting sore you were always seeking for answers I wasn't looking for a silver bullet I was just looking for someone to tell me what I was doing was incorrect at that point in time and I think coaching in the last seven or eight years I, I get to spend so many hours per week with my my runners so in my sixth or seventh year I have a couple runners that are up to their fifth or sixth year with me now and I hardly need to say anything to them anymore I feel like um you know the past six or seven years I've spent so much time with them that you know, the terminology we speak is very similar. They ask me a one-line question where that used to be maybe a 30-minute um, conversation six years ago. And suddenly we know they know why they're doing what they're doing. I feel like I'm getting the message across for that particular individual that they've got the skill set to almost make me obsolete as a coach, if that makes sense. Like my role is so small now with those people. And as a practitioner, I feel like the job of coaching our patients, you've got 30 to 60 minutes to speak to this patient to truly influence their whole week or their whole month and and a lot of that comes with trying to you know work out why they're doing what they're doing um try and work out what the end goal is and then trying to reverse engineer that and say let's try and put the steps in place to get you from from where you are currently it might be sore it might be minimal load or it might be just not sure what you're doing and why you're doing it to try and engineer something they can control towards their goal and to me that still falls as a, a, a coaching paradigm more than anything it's it's so interesting because yeah that's a, driving from you just your personal experience of i'm coming to see someone with an idea a goal something in mind and saying i i feel like i need not only like treatment but i need answers <clears throat> i need to know what i'm doing why i'm doing <clears throat> it how i'm doing it and that's going to ultimately influence you <clears throat> and that sort of now just gone into your clinical practice where you're like, well, actually, yeah, everyone's like that. We've got, you know, when we look at the biopsychosocial research and we sort of say, oh, we've got this focus on behavior change. We've got this focus on these psychological therapies. We've got all of these things that are trying to influence people. And I wonder how much of it is not so much about, you know, having to do these really specific things, but it's more of just mm. where the research really is going when you look right behind it and you strip it back. Here's an individual yep. who's in trouble. How do we help them and focus on what they need, not what we think they need? And and, and that goes back to Engel in like the, his 1970s papers where he's mm. literally like, patient mm. comes in with distress. Our role is to help them with that distress, not to help mm. them with how we think they should be helped. And it's important that, you know, we, we pay interest in what their goals are as well. I mean, if someone this time of year I see a lot of people heading towards uh, the New York Marathon it's a it's a bucket list thing for them um, some are experienced some are inexperienced those who are experienced are usually searching for things that I would argue are more like one percenters they want the details on on footwear they want a little bit of the manipulation of sort of you know how I can deload one particular area and make change but those who are inexperienced may even assume that that's what they're searching for as well like a one percenter but a lot of the time you're sitting down with the people who haven't had that experience and you're laying down the foundation of what's truly important to finish this marathon. Um, you know, we do need to handle a particular amount of load, but maybe your expectations on what you think you need to do, you may actually not need to do that much to be able to reach this particular bucket list. And 
you're, you're, you're basically educating that person uh, on things that are more like the 80 or 90% that make up, you know, training characteristics that get them to a goal rather than detailing the one percenters. Um, and I think that becomes important as well, showing interest in the goal. And the goal is always relative for an individual. You know, not everyone's trying to run a 210 marathon. Some people are just trying to be out there for five hours, for example, to spend time with their friends and, and get the experience. And it's important to them as well. But um, trying to explain to them that sometimes these are training characteristics that are really sustainable. Getting you to the start line is an important feature of this. Um, let's check, let's keep things quite objective um, for what we need to do and then subjectively work around what your issues are and what your lifestyle is currently like and what you can handle. How do you go about these conversations? Because one of the things I see is we kind of go, oh, I asked, especially with, with uh, clinicians yep. asking you know, me for advice and, and I go, so what's the patient's goals? And they say, oh, it's, it's to run, yep. it's to do this, it's to, it's a very sort of generic, yep. it's not explored, it's not nuanced. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's often influenced by this view of um, yep. what our role is in, in, in doing that. How do you go mm -hmm. about these conversations to elicit the goals to, to get them speaking more widely and, and for some people get them to open up uh, about and yep. explore these different ways that you could help? I think um, working with a, a sports physician currently, uh, one of my business partners, Jeff Beryl, he calls it the 100-second rule. He spends the first 100 seconds really trying to get to know the patient and why they're there and, how, and trying to get a bit of intuition as to how important it is to them trying to find um, something you, you can relate to. Um, and that can be quite difficult if I'm dealing with lots of um, recreational runners and they, they sometimes ask, oh, I don't run like you though. But look, you know, running is a relative scale and you start by trying to, um, you know, put the importance of what they're doing similar to what you've done historically perhaps as well and realize that you're on the same, you know, you're on the same playing field through here. So taking interest, usually starts to um, um, give them, give you, they start to spill out the reasons why they're doing the event more than the actual problem they have. And then next comes the problem that they have and they'll start to describe, you know, when this thing began, how it's influencing them and how it's hindering them. And then the conversation normally becomes a bit more free flowing once you have interest into, um, into what their actual goal is. I think that's a really important. So I spend the first couple of minutes literally trying to get to know this person more than actually know their problem first and foremost. And most problems which are load management driven and trying to tweak training characteristics around are, are more, normally quite simplistic. But if you sort of can't get on the same level as to, you know, why, why they're there for that particular day. And often it makes it more difficult. Some of these practitioners I've seen, have um, people that I've seen have seen multiple practitioners prior so you're, you're trying to, um, you know, you're trying to attract the trust of the patient as well. And I think maybe having a history within running and an interest in what they're doing definitely, um, you know, gains more trust. So I think that's really important piece to get those conversations started. I think that's such a, a beautiful encapsulation of, of so many aspects there as well, because, you know, you've not only got this intense sort of focus on the individual when they've come in, you're going... I'm focusing on you and it's not immediately about me. You've got, uh, this almost like a curiosity mindset is sort of what I, I say to say to practitioners is you've got to be curious. You've got to be interested and people will have a great bullshit meter and they will pick it 100% if you are not interested. And you know, there's a, there's a, a lovely little rule there that you've got where it's like, it's something that can help people settle 
uh, you know, just give that that first couple of minutes, that 100 seconds, uh, and see where that leads. And it sort of provides a nice prompt. And and that's kind of what I do where I, I, I exactly what I do. I sit down and I just go, let's just see when they naturally stop talking. They're ready yep. to listen. They're ready to receive. And then we can reflect. But I think so much of that as well as yep. we're also acknowledging the social aspect of it, which is that you are a known Absolutely. runner. You are a, someone who is, is interested in the, in the sport. And I've seen it, you know, seeing practitioners across uh, multiple countries. Uh, like I remember going to see Doug Ritchie in the US and he was just a, a, a pillar of the community is kind of how I would put it. Um, and so mm. people would know him, they would come see him. There was an immediate trust there because they're like, oh yeah, you know, I know you, you're around town, you're involved in the organizations. And that's not saying everyone that's has right. to be, be like that, but mm -hmm. you can acknowledge how you present to the world will impact how people present to you. And that works both ways, whether that's, uh, pro Absolutely. or con, <laughs> if, uh, mm -hmm. if you're just yeah, known as a right. guy that yeah. flogs orthotics. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Adelaide is a smaller place. Um, I'm not sure. Canberra is probably relatively similar. But um, in, I prior to working in Adelaide, I lived in the country, Loxton. And actually, when I graduated, I um, worked uh, every second weekend in Loxton uh, in my hometown I grew up, which was meant to be only you know, three or four years to get me on my feet and to try and you know learn experience. It was a nice way. I had great GPs uh, to work with and a great physiotherapist at the time. And I've staying there for 11 years and... Um, and then part of that reason was because, and I still see a lot of Adelaide uh, people who travel to Adelaide to see me now as well. And when I see them in the diary, you know, I think back to my own experience traveling up for three hours with my parents and, um, you know, staying with someone for half an hour and maybe not pushing me in the direction I really wanted to at that point in time. Um, and it's no no problem with the practitioners. This wasn't something that they valued or put time into. And I always wanted to make sure that if I see people from the country, uh, I know they've invested a lot of time and effort to get there time-wise and um and i realized how that made me feel as even as a as a late teenager and uh, trying to give as much emphasis to um you know to a plan for that person to help them because you may not see them for months after you might not see them ever again in fact you may be that one moment where you're trying to um you know give them the skill set to look after themselves or self-efficacy running is one of those sports that um it is relatively built around self-efficacy as well it's a bit different to team sports where things are always there you do have to um, make your own decisions. And we talk about training errors um, being the major reason for running related injury, but then we probably don't discuss enough that decision-making is probably what leads to these training errors. So um, helping them make those decisions is really, really important. So, Yeah, that's, uh, you talk, you're talking about as well that you're having, having people come in and you mentioned it sort of throughout, which is you're trying to make yourself obsolete. You're coaching them and you're helping them yeah. sort of learn. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's sort of a couple of, couple of things that come from that. I mean, one, how do you go about doing that in your clinical practice? Do you have more time or do you set up schedules and, and things? How does that, that work in? But sort of two is going to be that, how does that sort of fit in then with, uh, you know, a traditional model of how we, how we treat and manage people, which is, you know, we're thinking about fixing them, how, how, mm -hmm. and, and providing them specific treatments. How is that then sort of yep. working in? Cause I guess one of the criticisms mm -hmm. that, that we can definitely get as people with yep. sort of more of a coaching mindset is, oh, we're just talking to them or we're not doing mm -hmm. real sort of therapies. And it's yep. like, uh... yep. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting. Like, I, I spend more time with my patients, first and foremost. Usually between 45 to 60 minutes will be with my patients. Um, and, you know, that will be the conversations. It'll be the subjective. And they'll be objective. You know, I like to see my runners move. Like, I, a lot of the times I'm seeing my runners, my runners move and treadmill and jumps, hops and skips. One, to, to work out just how they move globally, for example, and, and get a, an emphasis as to why they do what they do. And nine times out of ten, there's everyone, you know, lives on this, you know, continuum of normality. And some people can be biased one way more than the other. And you're just sort of describing how they move. And these are the attributes that are usually required to make you move like this or accommodate this movement. And, um, look, this may be a risk factor, et cetera. Um, or, you know, things that they don't have any problems, you don't mention things as risk factors, they're usually not necessary. Things aren't risk factors until they're, you know, until there's naturally a problem. So uh, the, the time spent with the patient, but you're also having a conversation when you're doing the objective as well. A lot of the time you're learning continually through the consult. So time is really, really important. But at the end of it, I'll normally create a bit of a synopsis of key takeaways. And whether it's not just verbally, I'll usually write things down or I'll send them through by email, for example. So they've got like a not just not an instruction manual to follow, but just some key points. For example, when they when they go away for the week, whether it's looking at how they uh, structure their weekly regime, for example, things that might have been a previous risk factor, can we mark it off that that was a problem and make that change, and then go through the list, for example, of almost like a hierarchy of importance what you get out of the consultation. Yeah, that's that's such a, a a great way to sort of go about it. Where if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, what what we're getting is we're getting rather than looking at things from this subjective, objective, you know, listening and talking and um, doing. There's this, this sort of arbitrary sort of dichotomy between the two. It's all really in in one how they move. And I guess when we sort of look at the wider literature, we, we see this with risk factors um, and like a complexity-based model, you know, how they move is going to be impacted by their fatigue, by their confidence, by thinking about what they're doing. And so you're not really, you're just kind of busting down that wall and just saying, well, it's all related and I'm not there doing one thing or another. I'm just watching and have talking, collecting information and then yep. making it make sense to the patient. Yeah, and it, and it looks some you know when we we talk about things that are important for sustainability within activity levels and, and running levels, for example, it is very multifactorial, and there probably is a bit of a hierarchy that exists, you know, in terms of don't overdo it. So you know, characteristics of of loading, and but the hierarchy might change from one individual to another as well. You know, we talk about tissue capacity being a really important piece of the puzzle, and and some people have great tissue capacity and don't need to spend as much time in that particular area and other people don't quite have that it's like you know dealing with patients with you know low bone density and um, osteopenia etc as well the ceiling to handle load is something that you know for a short period of time you need to accommodate and you know one you might be trying to educate this patient we need to build the ceiling up a little bit but in the interim period like this is our ceiling will be a little bit lower and we need to be able to earn a bit higher for example so setting realistic expectations with patients to realize you can do a fair bit with what you know and then make moves from there. But, you know, one thing at a time, so one problem at a time sort of thing, you know, not trying to fix seven problems back to back to back. It's when you start to get overwhelmed and people really feel like they're not built to do this. And and then you do hear these comments of, you know, I'm not built to run. You know, I've heard that from people that, you know, run 148 for 800 and move beautifully and say, oh, you know, they've got Achilles problems again. I'm not built for this sport. So if you're not built for this sport, no one's built for this sport. So, <laughs> 
And then you do hear the five-hour marathon runner say, look, I'm not built for this sport. And say, well, look, you've only been doing this for two months. You don't even know what you're built for yet. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really just trying to set realistic expectations of their relative state and then trying to change the values over time. So getting them to earn more capacity is the most important thing. And I think when people have control over it rather than they thinking the practitioner has control over it, it gives them a lot better chance to get better outcomes, I think. Mm. I, I there, there was sort of a point that I took out where you, and, and it's something that I see as well when people start to try and move into this coaching sort of space or into just, just sort of looking more at an individual, which is, um, you know, mm. you said focus on one problem or, and you're talking about hierarchies mm-hmm. and synopsises. And I think there's just a beautiful bit about there where you're sort of going, you're looking at everything and then you're going, what's the most important thing or a couple of important things? What's their hierarchy? What are we going to start to try and influence and change? And I'm assuming as well, what you see is you see, we change one thing, then it's going to have an impact on everything else. And I can see exactly where like people, people get burnt out and, and also potentially our patients as mm. well. If they come in and you've got a practitioner that's like, oh my God, I've got to explore sleep. I've got mm. to explore diet. I've got to explore movement. I've got to explore yeah. the specific treatments. And they sort of get, get lost. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And look, a lot, I mean, podiatry, and you'd be able to agree with this. A lot of people are coming in for very specific things a lot of the time. Um, and they, a lot of people don't need specific things. I mean, I get, People coming in literally just wanting to know what shoes they need to wear, but they've been running for two months, for example. So that population, you know, if you want to give a long-term encouragement impact on that person, you're probably trying to let them know that, look, I'll push you in the right direction for what shoes I think you'll enjoy and, and will work well for you. But it's a small piece of the puzzle through here. Um, you know, give people a bit of, you know, fun reading on the side. If you're enjoying this spot, this might be a nice thing to think about the first few months while, someone who comes in who's really you know experienced and has more knowledge in the running world than I do are coming in for footwear advice is very specific because maybe they do know more about themselves and how they train so their hierarchy is completely different to someone who has minimal experience and you, you need to respect that to some extent and and you need to you know probably you probably have to use a little bit more intuition and unfortunately I think that's that's very experience driven so um mm. as opposed to you don't really get a good curriculum on that and um yeah, I think it's just being exposed to enough people over time and and, um, and seeing enough different personalities and working out how things have worked out positively or negatively with previous patient experiences and trying to not make those errors again, as we always sort of do, um, yeah, especially in our early years. There's a little bit of a humbleness there. We talked about, you know, curiosity uh, and the, as one sort of feature, and, but there's also like what I take that humbleness in terms of you know what you know, and you're not there as, as always the expert, you know, having that experience with seeing runners who are like, they know their body, their body, they know the sport even <laughs> more than yourself. And you're like, yeah. I, I'm going to fit in where I know I fit in and, and uh, work with them rather than work on them. And I think that's important to know, like a lot of people who are inexperienced are searching for more general answers in many types of areas. And it's important that we try and provide them in those areas and just but then emphasize some of those ones that we think are more important in the early days, especially for that individual. But we talk about, you know, even having a lot of discussions the past few weeks in areas of footwear prescription, you know, we podiatrists are very lucky, you know, we are the foot and ankle experts. And for some reason, we've been landed this great um, level of um, uh, experience in footwear prescription and I, I talk about who's in the best position to prescribe footwear and, and exercise and 
And for some reason, I could lecture to the chiropractors and I was really impressed with, with them a couple of weeks ago when they came out. I didn't realize there were so many sports um, chiropractors and surprised me. But I can go on a Sunday long run with a group of kids who are 16 to 21 years of age and their knowledge on footwear and their intuition in footwear is just fantastic. And they've earned this by, by wearing them and being interested in it. And sometimes, you know, I have conversations with them that surpass my peers in podiatry. Their knowledge is fantastic. So you have to, you have to respect that some people's interests and how much they know about themselves. And a part of that is the subjective early on. And when you find out someone that's quite inexperienced, like I have patients that come through because they listen to our my podcast and their knowledge on some of the shoes that have come out because they're obviously they're, they're interested enough to listen to a podcast about shoes. They must have some interest in shoes. And every now and then you'll meet someone who just knows so much about shoes and the specific attributes. I am blown away. And suddenly they're asking questions they already know the answer to. They're informing me on the attributes of this particular shoe and asking if this will work pretty well relative to the way they move. And you think this is a really enjoyable place to be. But if I just pretended I knew more than them, it'd be almost embarrassing for me because they know more than I do. So, um, so you have to realize that there are always people out there that have great knowledge. And I work with, with runners all the time and um, you have to be humbled by not getting things correct. You know, it's that rule of thirds where I will take a group of six athletes away. I'm taking them to Canberra this week, actually, to uh, the National Cross Country at Stromlo. So we're looking forward to that. And, you know, I'd get so disheartened when someone was in such good shape, but just didn't execute the race on the day. But then someone else will pop up who you expected not much from and they'll they'll win the race by like six or seven seconds and you didn't expect it. And then someone will just compete and they'll run about what they should have. You know, they'll perform to their ability what I thought they would. And you have one overperforming, one underperforming and one who performs exactly the way you think they would. This rule of thirds um, almost exists every time you come home from a race. And I've just begun to accept that like as much as you can control those characteristics and say the right words to people and try and get them motivated to perform well, um, you, you can't control everything and uh, you have to stay humbled by things happening like that. So there's never, every now and then you get two thirds performing well and every now and then you'll get one third. And, um, yeah, and it's just because you just humans, you can't control everything, can you? Mm. Well, that's such a, that's such a good point, you know, to extend that sort of humbleness as well. It's sort of, we can see if, we, if we're sort of taught as especially podiatrists maybe not as much other professions uh like I, I definitely see physio sort of shifting but podiatrists are still sort of taught in this mechanical or kinesiopathological bio biomechanical sort of model of we make a change and there we we get a a, a linear reciprocal change um which is not how, not how humans work and there's just yeah. that level of accepting where we're we're sort of going we're only part of the puzzle their body's going to do it. And it goes back to that hierarchy where you're just going, what can I change? And then you're observing the change and you're, and your sort of worth as a practitioner isn't tied to that outcome per se. It's, it's yeah. almost like the, the process. And yeah. by having this coaching process, building this trust, having this knowledge, working with the patient, you're relying on that relationship that you're building uh, rather than you know, having just this being the person with the with the name on the door or the having mm. seen so many athletes and having, you know, being yep. the person to see. Mm. No, it, exactly. But look, that's definitely evolved over my time. Like I said, this is my 17th year now and I'd put my hand up and be the first to say that, you know, I got into this world of podiatry assuming that I could mechanically solve all my problems, if that makes sense, the interest of doing that and realising that, 
um, so many other factors are important. I still enjoy the mechanical side of it. In fact, if you love footwear and you love the mechanic side of it, it is, it is actually a really enjoyable piece of the puzzle and patients are attracted to it as well. Um, so it's good to be able to, to pull emphasis on that because we do have good knowledge on that area. But it's also, once again, it, it's placing it within the hierarchy of importance for that individual. Um, and look, some patients, you know, it's hard to be able to, um, to not get them to think that is the, the, the priority, for example, as well. So you put it, you know, you, you, you perform that and you educate in that area. And then you have to almost, when I give patients a bit of synopsis, I would indirectly try and list it as a bit of a synopsis of where I think it is it placed in importance for them. I'll do my best through there as well. And very rarely, uh, you know, a cadence change for patellofemoral pain will sit at the top of a treatment regime for, um, you know, for someone managing knee pain for running, for example, just as a, a mechanical example. Yeah. I guess it's, it's interesting because we, we, one of the things I think about as well, we we're talking about this is, have you seen like the Fabian Horst papers on footwear or like Declan Sweeney's work with antipronation orthotics? Uh, a little bit, yeah, yeah. But look, you're more well versed in this area, so I'm happy to sit and listen to this one. <laughs> well, yes, I'm going to bring up examples that I'm I'm versed yeah, yeah. in. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, we've we've got these 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 two sort of I was going to say, I was going to say two studies, but we've got a study and a thesis. So Fabian mm-hmm. Horst's paper comes out of the Ben O'Niggs Biomechanics Lab. Just took twenty people, uh, gave them four footwear conditions: barefoot, uh, their most comfortable mm-hmm. shoe, and then two control shoes. And they were saying 79, potentially 80 uh, unique uh, walking gait patterns and running gait patterns were identified Mm -hmm. by AI in each of those, each of those conditions. And then we, we look at um, like Declan Sweeney and his work on antipronation orthotics. And he's sort of really sort of backing up a lot of like the Chris Nestor stuff saying, look, we've Mm -hmm. got this potential consistent treatment effect, but we've also got this incredible individual response. And realistically, yeah, yeah. you know, when we combine the two, we can't predict how people are going to respond. We might have this consistent mm-hmm. mechanical effect, but then mm-hmm. our response beyond that is is highly variable. And I, I guess we also see that as well with orthotics and, and, and the kinematic change versus kinetic. Look, we see that in performance as well, Alex. Like, you know, we're seeing the um, the advent of the super shoe right now of improve, improving performance, but we're seeing people have highly individual responses to the shoe as well mechanically. And, um, mm. you know, in, it's a joke in the running world. Sometimes we put on a super shoe if we don't perform quite as well that day, we'd sort of just walk away and say, nah, I'm a non-responder today. So, <laughs> and uh, use that as a bit of an excuse. But, um, but definitely it happens just, you know, how people are feeling that particular day and how they perceive the shoe and how they interact with it definitely seems to be a variable thing from not even just from individual to individual, but almost from day to day. <laughs> how do you handle those conversations in the clinic? Like someone turns up and they're saying, oh, I'm getting all these problems. You've told me to do this or, or I've been doing all the things and it's not, not going the way mm. we expected. How, how do you handle that as a, as, as a conversation, especially like as someone who's, who's, you know, as a business owner where you're like, this is, this is reflecting, you know, on me yeah, yeah. in a way or, or could reflect yep. on you. Look, there's always something you can try and alter within a, a treatment regime and it could be very specific or it could be very non-specific sometimes as well. And, you know, we talk about, um, you know, manipulating someone's training load or their movement patterns or their footwear, for example. Um, a lot of the time we get fixated on one or two things. We just need to make sure that patients, you know, potentially not fixated just on one, like one issue, for example. You can get caught up in it and realize and dwell on it and say, well, this, 
this was important to me and this one particular um, pathway just didn't work for me. Um, what are the other pathways? I think giving multiple pathways is an important piece of the puzzle and trying to focus on something that might be a little bit easier. Um, sometimes, you know, hoping that a shoe will change someone's pain level and give them this, you know, panacea of, of, of resolution of pain sometimes is the ultimate Hail Mary. And it looks, makes us look better than what we are if we get it right. But obviously, why we got it right, how the mechanism worked, we're probably unsure of. We just take, you know, we take it as a, as a, as a gold star that day if it works well. But yeah, I think when it, when things start to become a little bit more complicated, you need to, you need to spend more time speaking to the person, to be honest. I think it becomes more important that you actually are engineering. Why do you, because it might be other factors popping up that you think are barriers through here. You know, people, I mean, leading into big races as a coach, for example, small things like anxiety. It's like this week I've had someone who's had a sore calf. They haven't had a sore calf for three weeks. I don't know if it's a big deal or not for that person, but it's race week for them. I had a young kid who's got a head cold now, and this young kid has a head cold. It might be really mild, <laughs> but it's race week for him, so it's a really big problem. So you're, you're trying to get them to distract almost and try and realize, well, look, you know, this week, you, you change this week, you, know, you, it's not, you can't get fitter. You can definitely get less fit if you, you know, don't sleep and don't eat and don't do those one percenters. You go out and try and run when you're sick, for example. So a lot of the times you're, you've got the crash cut out and you're triaging uh, a lot of the emotions first and foremost. And then you step back and try and identify a few things that we may not have changed yet and sort of head down towards a pathway that we haven't tried at that point in time. And you are doing that via the patient's subjective. You're, you're trying to intuit what you think is really causing their problem in terms of whether it's emotional, whether it is an actual physical problem, or whether now it is time for a bit of a, a break or stopping and just resetting for a period of time. And no one likes talking about the last one, but there are times and places where that is beneficial as well. Mm. And I guess, I guess you, you know, when we go back to what we were talking about before, where you're having the conversation, you're doing an objective, you're seeing how people move and you're sort of going through this, this mm. consult there's, you know, we talked about, you know, a lack of di dichotomy and I guess that's between, you know, talking and, and, and an objective. And I guess that's sort of what you're sort of identifying there as well, that there's a level of, you know, problems can sort of span across a number of different components. We do have a, a, a sort yeah. of path, but it's not the, mm. the calf that's a specific problem in a way. It's when the, mm. when the calf is sore, what that means mm. to the person. And it's not exactly yes, an right. entirely emotional problem uh, or not a problem at all. It's probably a very normal response, but we're kind of like yep. that now becomes our role to, to understand and yep. manage that and maybe not overmanage yep. it or, or uh, well, in, that's in right. You know, it's, in examples like that, it's sending the person away and saying, look, you know, you, you're, you, you miss a workout. That's, that's not ideal, but you're not going to get much better from that workout. Go for a walk that day or whatever. You take the dog for a walk and they jog the next day and they come back and say, oh, my calf feels fine. And you're like, resolution. Whereas, <laughs> you know, it's, it, but it, it wasn't the calf that was the issue, for example. It was the calf might have been something there, but it might have been um, just the anxieties related to the week and not feeling perfect and this weird expectation of feeling perfect in, in an important week seems to be something you're trying to resolve that as the problem, not the calf, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Mm. There's that, yeah. there's a, a quote and I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to remember it exactly, but sort of along the lines of people don't remember what you say. They remember how you make you feel. And there's lots of quotes mm. about, you know, people shouldn't leave your office feeling more broken than when they, when they came in. And Absolutely. I think that's, yeah. That's a great encapsulation of that where you're sort of going, mm. you know, we could drill, if we really understand what's going on with the patient 
and we're listening to yeah. them and, and we're going in without that judgmental mindset, both on, on them, yep. oh, you know, they're anxious and they shouldn't be anxious, but also judging from yep. the perspective of, I got to quickly identify what I'm going to do rather than listening. You know, we can kind yep. of miss that, that bigger point. Spot on. Yeah. Hmm. One of the things that we sort of have talked about sort of briefly before, um, you know, in our own sort of private conversations is activity requirements. So to take a bit of a, a hard left turn, you know, specifically like we think like the AACSM's yeah. activity guidelines. Mm. And that's sort of one thing that you've, you've brought up and sort of said is, is quite important. Can you sort of talk about, I mean, first of all, what, what are the activity requirements and yeah. sort of where they sort of fit in clinically as well, especially when we're thinking about coaching and, and improving a patient? Yep. Yeah, look, I'm definitely not Peter Adia on this conversation. Um, uh, but in saying that, like I did, had the opportunity to present on this area at uh, the Age Care Conference, which we held here in Adelaide last year, which I really enjoyed. It was a different area um, to just, just to talk about. This area of interest, um, the activity guidelines are getting people to be generally more active and making it um, routine in their weeks, for example. It was definitely something I um, I took more notice working in the country, in the Riverland, uh, when I worked there. Um, a lot of farmers live there and and, you know, it's very binge-orientated work. During the harvest times, they'll be working 17-hour shifts, for example, for blocks of two to three months of the year and the other periods of time they're sort of, you know, recovering, so to speak. Getting them to be um, putting value into exercise is something that's quite difficult in those countries, uh, country areas. Um, whereas I would say in my sports medicine clinic, look, I'm not seeing problems with activity levels. I'm probably seeing um, more problems on the other end of the scale with things like you know, um, overtraining syndromes, bone stress injuries, uh, readily energy deficient syndrome. But on a global term, a global point, all uh, practitioners um, need to have a bit of a, an, an, an idea of the activity that that patient is performing. And well, statistically, most people that they will tend to be seeing will usually be below the guidelines of what they can achieve. And those activity guidelines, whether they you read the World Health Organization or the ACSM ones, there's always different variations. And most people are, uh, the requirements for activity, at least five days a week, or close to 150 minutes per week of um, low to moderate intensity activity, um, mixed with now some strength training, one to two days per week for a healthy adults. Uh, children at different, children at 60 minutes per day, but anyone who's had a, ch a child, like I've got a three-year-old, if you don't give them 60 minutes a day, look, they're giving it to you in the evenings and when they're trying to go to sleep, so you do need to do that anyway. And with a, with um, older adults, for example, it's, you know, it's mixing in some cardiovascular activity consistently 150 minutes per week or some balance exercise and some, some strength training too, all in the attempt to create someone to be more sustainable um, or have a, a better health span, so a better quality of life for a longer period of time and um and just longevity just lifespan itself and i i i guess when you i don't know if you've read some of the papers i know there was um a paper by i think it was a podiatry group out of launceston um they looked at um the knowledge of practitioners in the area of knowing the activity guidelines i can't remember the specific quote um but yeah around about between 40 to 60%, depending on where you got your literature from, or whether, where you, where, whether it was America or here or over in the northern, uh, northern Europe, a lot of practitioners couldn't cite the activity guidelines for starting points. And if you can't cite them, it's hard to be able to educate people on those activity guidelines. And, and 
I mean, lo and behold, the activity guidelines are just guidelines. Um, you know, probably people should be doing more than those guidelines, more than likely. <laughs> so it will definitely can achieve more than that as well. So, of course, the World Health Organization suggests that you should do five hours a week of aerobic training. And I guess people understanding what aerobic training is um, probably actually becomes a problem as well. You know, it's not going to high intensity, hard classes, you know, for 150 minutes of the mm. week. Um, people can go for a walk through the national park and walk up a couple hills and the, the cardiovascular demands of those activities might be well and truly enough for that person. So, and of course, as the person becomes aerobically fitter, um, the demand of the exercise becomes a little bit higher. You have, you have to have a higher, like a higher quality or higher external load to be able to perform or get a receiver internal response. So. So people exercising minimum five times a week and collecting between three to four hours per week of aerobic activity should be the standard. Um, it should be more for, for children and it should be at least that for older adults with, you know, activities that stop you from essentially reducing risk of other ailments. You know, I, I think myself, like I'm probably, um, I could probably do more strength activities. I think my limitation probably, you know, 30 years from now is probably pushing myself out of a chair. <laughs> so I probably uh, need to work at those things that, you know, allow me to, you know, live a long life as well. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because, yeah, like this isn't an area of um, focus, especially for, for podiatrists and potentially for, for um, many other people. Like I, I did a, a whole subject in this in my postgrad and, yeah, it was, mm. it was very interesting in terms of going through all the guidelines and what's happening. And I think mm. bring it back to the part of the discussion we were talking about before, taking into account everything that's happening for this person and everything that's going mm. on. One of the things that could potentially jump out is like we're so focused on, on removing load and taking things away and that's oh. our focus. Yeah. And some, sometimes it's about balance. It's about the fact that, you know, we've got Absolutely. someone overworking in this area and underworking mm. in another area. Uh, it's that perception that people have to work hard to be healthy when like we're talking oh, exactly yep. VO2 max is like what, uh, oh no, not VO2 max, but like the, the oxygen requirements um, mm. for moderate level activity is not getting you to a, to a puff where a lot of people think exactly. they've got to be puffing yeah. yep. to, to exactly. be healthy. Yeah, yeah. And these discussions are really important with patients. We, we know VO2 max has a, an association to longevity, right? We do know that. You know, the ability to walk upstairs probably demands 15 to 20 points of VO2. Once we drop below that, we know the ability to walk upstairs is probably pretty low. Therefore, as you get older, if you can't do that, your mortality risk starts to increase. So that's where it becomes important is that people sometimes think that the activity guidelines are be hard to meet, just the actual uh, process of hearing the word activity guidelines sounds moderately hard but um, a lot of the times to reach them the you know subjectively well, objectively people going for a, a fast walk or a moderate walk seems to reach the domains of moderate cardiovascular activity and to walk three hours a week is not demanding it's relatively enjoyable if you have a nice environment around you and even if you don't have a nice environment around you walking is quite nice and hitting that standard is actually quite easy but going to a high intensive interval class where they expect you to collect uh, probably 30, 40 minutes of hard work. It's enjoyable when it's like, it's enjoyable when it's done. Um, it's hard when you do it and doing that a couple of times a week is largely beneficial as well, but you can definitely fill in the activity guidelines by doing a bit of easier stuff as well. And in the world of endurance activity where the best, you know, <laughs> the best cardiovascular engines are made and probably people have the greatest longevity and, um, 
and less cut, less metabolic disease. We probably start to see that in our, our elite aerobic athletes. And a lot of what they do is many more hours in the population, but they do a lot of it moderately easy, for example, because not, not scared. It's, it's, you don't need to be scared of that type of activity. And I think uh, educating patients that you don't actually need to, um, to work hard all the time. You just need to make sure you're doing something is really, really important. And that's something you'll get better at and you'll be able to do it better and you'll, you'll demand to work harder to get the same cardiac output eventually as well. So you will improve that way. And that does have the association, the health span and lifespan. So I think as podiatrists, I mentioned to you offline that people probably forget that we, we don't think it's our place to educate people on the physical activity guidelines, but then I don't really know who is, you know, <laughs> GPs have so many jobs, for example, are they expected to do it? Well, they probably are, of course. But I think it's just one of those um, one of those things that everyone in health is required to to push people forward to doing a bit more rather than a bit less a lot of the time as well. You're treating that person with heel pain who has metabolic syndrome. Look, you know, you start to get success trying to encourage that person to be able to take more steps, walk more, do some surrogate cardiovascular activity in the interim period that's a bit less weight-bearing but still collects some heartbeats may have really good outcomes off the heel pain management regime itself and decrease the risk of future ailments as well. So, but look, our, our, our outline is probably to get people as active as possible as well. And it's usually more active than what they currently are, unless you work in a, um, a sports medicine clinic with lots of endurance athletes, and then it's trying to calibrate it a touch differently. <laughs> well, it's, it's such a, it's such a good point. Cause you're also like, I see a lot of people who are like, I need to exercise more for, whatever reason and it's that that misunderstanding of how hard they need to go that kind of drives them towards injury being mm. being one but the other the side of it is that a lot of see a lot of people give up they go well, i can't mm. do that i can't do this and you know you said before it's just a guideline well exactly yeah. so you know it's a guideline where we actually see lots of people do incredibly well doing very limited like very well not limited but very absolutely. low level and lots of it activity lots of gardening lots absolutely. of i'm um, yep. just moving around exactly and they're some of the the most healthy people i remember during the covid period i know during just after the lockdown um people could head outdoors but you couldn't be in certain areas and i used to every thursday before i start work go for a long run in a new area so pick a forestry or a national park and for like eight years straight i went to a new area and just run for 90 minutes or two hours during that COVID period, I saw, you know, parents and grandparents with their kids for the first time on these places like the Heisen Trail that I'd never seen people for the last seven years all popped out onto these trails. And you think, oh, geez, this is this is fantastic. People are out and about. I don't see – it has stuck a little bit. People are still out in the trails, not as much as what it was in that time. It was almost like people got put into lockdown and said, oh, look, I'm going I'm to go walk and break the lockdown, for example, and go out and be more active. But um, – it's it is amazing on a Sunday seeing living across the road from a national park. We're in a really active area through here, and um, yeah, it's, uh, we often probably don't see those patients in the clinic. To be honest, probably have less ailments, less problems. Um, so a lot of people that we tend to see um, may need a bit more assistance and pushing them towards those goals, and you know, making their lifestyles more active, putting value into it, mm, and and sort of correcting those myths, those ideas, and. But yeah, I think it's so important to realize who's not coming into our clinic and who's doing well. It's probably yeah. something we've been bad at. We've been diagnosing abnormalities, mm. but we're, we're very unaware of the wider population with abnormalities that we never see. Yeah, absolutely. Doing well. <laughs> yep. I think that's such a, we've had such a, a great chat and I think there's been so many things to, 
that, that we've been able to cover, especially in sort of thinking about coaching and managing patients and managing active mm. patients or maybe less active patients. Is there anything that you that you think about that we haven't discussed that you'd like to add or, or say to people or, or emphasize or maybe even just something that you've in this conversation you think sort of important to re-highlight? Uh, look, that's been a good conversation and we can probably chat about more stuff on this type of topic. It's really it's quite organic. So I guess as you could use many anecdotes, for example, and that fills up a lot of time. But look, I think with, with practitioners dealing with specifically, um, you know, we, we get caught up in, 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 in our, our mechanics and our treatment regimes that are built around trying to solve the problem with a panacea, you know, making someone move differently, stop a movement, um, create a movement, for example. I, I think being holistic is a really, um, like in terms of having a, um, a, a quite a large, uh, at least the tool belt of knowledge of what makes people um, at risk of types of injuries. Like I, I'm biased towards running related injury because I'm, 80% of my patients have walked through the door in that area, so I'm confined to that area. But that in itself is really complicated. And and usually you need to have understanding on, on the activity uh, for one, the demands of it. And then you need to be able to know the continuum of different abilities and, and, and experience levels that take place and then try and move along that continuum to where that person currently is and try and work out what their needs are. So it's not just understanding the mechanics that will lead to running injuries, understanding running that might lead to a mechanical problem. So you, you need to understand why they're doing these these activities, why it's important to them, get them to relate to you and build a nice rapport with that patient. And and often that is a, a, pay, a process of education predominantly um, and then giving them the skill set to be able to make better decisions and how to help them triage moments when they need help, if that makes sense, if you're giving them a good skill set. Because if they continue to be super active, they always come up with a bit of a, um, a question at some point in time and a person who's well-educated might be a, you know, a, a better opportunity to make a better decision and reduce error at that point in time. So as much as we probably don't think of ourselves as educators, we predominantly are, um, just with the skill set to be able to manipulate a few things that either be mechanical or um, you know, they, they are the sub-skill sets that we, what we have. But of course, treating, person, um, treating the person, not the injury, we hear this ironically all the time but it stems pretty true and i think we get better with that with more experience and, and seeing it more often as well it's it's almost in a way like you've you've somehow managed to listen to the, the this podcast that i've just previously recorded on injury prevention where you're sort of you're talking about it's not so much about the uh, the specific things or specific risk factors. It's, it's looking at the sport, mm -hmm. it's looking at the person, it's looking at everything, looking what they need to do and preparing them mm. for Absolutely. that. And, and that sort of spans yeah. across very active populations and, and also very non-active populations and saying, you know, for some Absolutely. people they need to do less here, for some people they needed to do more, some people they need to change. Yeah. But it's about that yeah. individual preparation and, and good mm. good rehab that spans their whole life, not just their their one specific injury. Well, it's, it's a good conversation. We talk, I, I like this conversation. You jump on the Twitter and years ago for most treatment regimes, people were stretching and now people aren't stretching. In fact, stretching has almost become the opposite. You're not allowed to stretch anymore and they've just thrown it out completely. And, you know, some, and everyone lives on this continuum. You know, most inactive populations tend to probably need to be stiffer and be stronger and do more strength training and more activity in general. 
And then I see populations who run, you know, 120 Ks a week, plyometrics twice a week and clean and jerk 100 kilos, but they weigh 70 kilos and they're amazing athletes and they're so far along the stiffness continuum, they're probably at risk of injury if they aren't a bit more compliant. So it's there's a time and place for different um, different mm. modalities. And sometimes we just sort of like throw one out the window and we keep the other one and it just goes through these little fads, if that makes sense. But there's probably a time and place for all these regimes. You're just trying to fit the person where their current status is at. So I always get a little bit frustrated when stretching just disappears and then strength trains up. And, and I'm sure it was the same when stretching became, you know, every treatment regime probably in the late 80s, early 90s. So, but um, it's important to keep an open mind that there's probably a time and place for both, right? Yeah. Oh, no, abs- absolutely. Look, thank, thanks for, for taking the time to come on and, and have, a, have a chat. Is there any, uh, well, I guess the thing we should cover is where people can sort of find and follow you and, and your, your podcast as well. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm pretty, relatively inactive on social medias, but I am on uh, Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it now. So I still am there under knitters. Um, my writing groups, the Adelaide Milers crew, um, I'm relatively educational in that, that which is good um, in terms of like putting stuff up on, on running training, and et cetera, and on all those social media platforms. And um, and our, our, yeah, our podcast is the Inside Running Podcast. We're the Shoe Geeks. We're once a month. Um, and every now and then we get people on from brands as well. This week we got the guy from On who was part of the Lightning team and created all the new um, – was part of the performance range recently. So there's some – some little snippets of the footwear industry and people have been in it. We had this great interview back in the early days with Steve Monaghetti covering the history of the Nike footwear. And that's one of my favorite podcasts we've ever done. So um, just getting a bit of an insight into the evolution of footwear from uh, from someone who's probably the most renowned runner in, the, in Australian history. So, Yeah, fantastic. So for people, yeah, like like hearing what you say and, and want to hear you talk about footwear, there's, uh, there's a, lot to, a lot for them to listen to. Perfect. Well then, thanks everyone for for joining us on this this conversation. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the Rehab Podiatrist podcast on all platforms, uh, and you can follow me as well at the Rehab Podiatrist Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Otherwise, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, Alex, mate.